All right, well, this morning we are going to be starting a, a, new, a new series, a new study into the book of James. And um, many of the, these songs are not um, chosen by accident. Um, they're deliberate. You know why, why the, those songs are, are, are chosen. Um, and so, you know, as we think through some of those, you know, rising up. And that's what I really, it's really my prayer for us as a church. Not just here, not just our local body here, not just here at Faith Chapel. The church universal. Um, it's important that the church rises up. You know, there's no question that we live in, in trying times. Um, but even, even in, in spite of trying, try, trying times, um, we need to rise up as a church and as people. And how do we do that? How do we rise up? Well, we need to do that in spirit and truth, and we need to do that in maturity. Because it would do no good for us to rise up and to shout things that are not true. Would that affect the world for the kingdom? No. Not in a good way. Because there's, there's plenty of that already happening out in the world right now, right? There's, there are plenty of people and plenty of churches that are rising up and saying lots of things. But they're not all true. And many of them have not grown in maturity They've taken an elementary truth, and that's as far as they've gone, and they've taken that immature message, and that's all they, they go with. And they never bring people to maturity in, in the Lord. And that's our call to do. Is one of the, the lines in the song was, it's, it's not my life to live. As followers of Christ, we've given up our freedom, so to speak, to live a life of immaturity. It's not ours to live. We've given it to him, and he has expectation for us. That, that song, have thine own way, is that, really the, is that really the cry of our heart? Do we really want the Lord to have his way? Because his way is not for us to sit at home and just watch TV and, and go about our life and come to church on Sunday and, oh boy, that was, wasn't that a good message? Oh yeah, Pastor had, to, he had a, that was a good, we had some, we sang some good songs. Oh, that was, that was nice. That was nice. I wonder what, I wonder what we'll, we'll see next Sunday. Is that having thine own way? No, he wants us to live lives in obedience to him, to follow after him daily. Take up your cross, right? That's what he tells us. And so that's kind of what we're going to be doing as we, as we start this, this study into James. Getting ready is the title of, of this today's message because that's what we're doing. We're, we're getting ready for the journey that we're getting ready to, to go on. And so this morning I, I want to talk to you about, or I want to start with, with this. 
food fight. A food fight. Food fights aren't unusual, are they? Many of us have experienced food fights. Many of us have been participants in food fights. Right? Guilty? Yeah. Well, according to the Associated Press, Lee Thoss and William Hawker got into a fight over Lee's picking through the lettuce at a salad bar. A full-fledged food fight resulted. There was name-calling and pushing and shoving, and, and, he, and someone was even bitten. This was a serious food fight. Was this at some random restaurant? Was this at a high school or, or maybe a college? No. Happened at a Florida retirement home. An upscale one at that. Lee Thoss is 62. William Hawker is 85. No, no, no criminal charges were filed, but Lee Thoss was asked to leave. And this just shows this, that immaturity can happen at any age. Not everyone who, who grows old grows up. There's a, there's a vast difference between age and maturity. Now, ideally, the older we get, the more mature we should be, but often the ideal does not become the real. And the result is problems, problems in our personal lives, in our homes, in our churches. Problems in these areas caused by, are caused by immaturity more than anything else. Christians would just grow up. They would become victors instead of victims. The epistle of James was written to help us understand and attain spiritual maturity. James 1.4 says that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Or as J.B. Phillips translated it, to become men of mature character, men of integrity, with no weak spots. Now, we're going to begin a series expositing the book of James, and with God's help, I hope it will help us all reach this goal of spiritual maturity. Now, Martin Luther once described the book of James as a, an epistle of straw, apparently because he, he thought it contradicted Paul's teaching on grace, and that it wasn't heavy on presenting the gospel. And it's true that James is, is not a doctrinal treatise, but it is an, an intensely practical manual for Christian living. And James complements Paul's emphasis on, on justifi justification by faith by his own emphasis on spiritual fruitfulness demonstrating true faith. Its, it's practical emphasis doesn't, doesn't stress theoretical knowledge but godly behavior. We must know our doctrine. We must know what we believe and why we believe it. But we must also know the practical application of that. How it, how it shows itself in our daily living. Now, I, I have always loved James' style of writing. 
He wrote with a, a passionate desire for his readers to be uncompromisingly obedient to the Word of God. He's a, he's a straight talker. He tells it like it is. He never leaves you wondering if something is right or wrong. Makes him my, my kind of guy. I, I love the way this epistle is, is packed full of insights. I appreciate the use of a, of a good story or, or word picture. You guys have seen that. So I, I really value James' use of analogies. James addresses some practical issues that are as current as a morning's newspaper. Yet his challenges are, are not dated. The timeless truth that James presents is that Christians must put their faith into action. The faith that Christians claim must be de demonstrated in all situations and circumstances at work, at home, around town, and in church. Trials and hardships are not to be seen as hindrances to faith, but as opportunities to exercise healthy faith. Knowing God's Word is not enough. That knowledge must be applied to our everyday lives. Real, authentic faith is the application of God's truth to ourselves. And that is made possible as our faith is tested. So we're getting ready. So here, who here likes to travel? Who here likes to travel? I think most of us do. Well, beginning a, a study of a book of the Bible is something like preparing for a trip. It's helpful to know a few things ahead of time. Just as you do as you prepare for a trip, you, you need to know where you're going, what you can expect to see when you get there. What are the local attractions? What are the points of interest? Things that you want to, to make sure you don't miss. You can make the trip more enjoyable when you know what to expect. And so that's what we're going to be doing this morning. Get ready. Get ready for this journey to the letter of James we're setting out on. Planning for all that we're going to see, hear, and experience. So we, we understand what it is we're getting in for. We're going to kind of break it down. This is going to be, uh, I think it'll be fun. It was fun for me. As we study God's words, it's important that we understand it in context. The Bible is composed of different styles and forms of writing. There are historical books like Genesis and Exodus. This happened and that happened and so-and-so did this and so-and-so did that. They're historical there's poetry like the Psalms. There's wisdom and teaching like, like Proverbs. This prophecy is in Revelation. This hasn't happened yet, but it's going to. There's the narrative of the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that record Jesus' earthly ministry. Then there are the, then there are the epistles. The epistles. It's kind of a, a funny word, isn't it? Does anybody know what the epistles means? It just means letters. The letters. They're the ones that were written by an apostle to, to another person or to a, a group of people. 
And they had a specific purpose. They were often for encouragement. Hey, good job over there. Keep it up. Good job. I like what you're doing. Or they were for correction. Hey, what are you doing? Knock it off. That's not how this works at all. You need to stop that. You need to start doing this. That's what the epistles are. They were letters. They addressed issues. So it's important as we study God's Word that we understand this, that we understand when we read a section of Scripture, what is it? Is it historical? Is it narrative? Or is it a letter of correction? The type of literature. We need to understand the context it was written in. Who it was written to why it was written. Otherwise, it can be real easy to take a verse out of context. And that can allow you to get pretty far away from the real intent of the author. And that can cause you to come away with some really wrong understandings of the Bible. So we need to practice good hermeneutics and exegesis. Exegesis is, a, is an explanation of the text. Everyone say that word, exegesis, exegesis, louder, there you go, it's the explanation of the text, what do the actual words mean, the original language in the Greek, you've heard me do that before, explain, you've, you've heard Tom do it, this is the word in the Greek and this is what it means in the Greek, and it helps us to draw the, the true meaning out, what, it, what, it really, what the author's really trying to say. Then hermeneutics. Everyone say hermeneutics. Hermeneutics. That's the overall how we go about doing that exegesis. It's the, the mechanics of, of figuring out the, the literary type, the, the history, the culture, the language. It's where we get the term expository, as in preaching. So you, you pull all of those different elements together to understand, to use all those different tools to flesh out what a passage means. So these words are important to know. Nothing else you can impress your friends at potlucks, right? No, I'm, I'm kidding. Knowing the words is not important. But doing them is. But doing them is. So perhaps the best way for us to launch a, a study of the letter of James is to answer some important questions first. The who, the why, and the what. So we know where we're going and we know what to expect when we get there. So the first question has to be, who was James? Who was James? Who was the author? Who wrote this? Well, there are four that are named James in the New Testament. Four potential nominees. But only two are considered candidates for authorship. So I'll name the, the first two that no one seriously considers, just so we know. James the Less, the son of Alphaeus, one of the one of the apostles, very little is known about him, and there's no indication 
from any historical documents that he wrote the epistle. James, the father of Judas the apostle, not Iscariot, and he's even more obscure. There's only one reference to him in the Bible at all. So that only leaves two other candidates. James, son of Zebedee and the brother of John, who was a fisherman called by Christ. But he was martyred too early to have written it. So it wasn't him. That, that leaves only James, the oldest half-brother of Jesus, the brother of Jude. He is the most likely candidate for the author of this epistle. Even though he humbly identifies himself in the beginning of his letter as a servant of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And some people have used that opening line as an argument that it couldn't be James, the half-brother. The fact that he didn't exalt himself as, as the Lord's brother. But James, like Paul, recognized that knowing Christ according to the flesh was no longer of value. The fact that he didn't emphasize his personal authority with Jesus, his personal relationship with the earthly Jesus, actually argues convincingly that he was so well-known and respected that it wasn't necessary. Jesus came from a big family. We often think of, of Jesus as just Jesus, right? Jesus, born in the manger, grows up, he's in the temple, and he's with... But he came from a big family. Matthew 13, 55 through 56, names Jesus' brothers. James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. And then it mentions sisters, plural, sisters. So he had at least six siblings. And James is always named first when Jesus' brothers are listed, which likely meant that he was the eldest of the four brothers there. And he and his, his brothers are even called Jesus' brothers by the skeptical neighbor, neighbors of Nazareth when Jesus began his, his earthly ministry. And they said this in Matthew 13, 55. It, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And, and are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And Paul also confirms this, James, as Jesus' brother in Galatians 1. Then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to, to visit with Cephas, and I remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And there are, are many verbal parallels between the book of James and, the, and James' speech in the letter recorded in Acts 15. So it's, it's pretty well settled and accepted that this James, the half-brother of Jesus, is the author of this letter. It's important for us to know this. We need to know who the author is, because that gives us an idea of their perspective, right? So, that leads to the next question. So we know it's James, the, the half-brother of Jesus, so the next question is, what, what kind of man was James? What do we know about him? There's a few things that we do know. The first thing that we know is that he was an unbeliever at first. He was an unbeliever. James and his brothers didn't believe in Jesus during his earthly ministry. 
John 7, 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. For some reason, none of his family did early on. In Mark 3, 31, after Jesus called his apostles, the family went out to, to seize him, saying he, he's out of his mind. Remember that? <clears throat> family. Jesus came from a big family. Can you imagine growing up in that family, though? Just imagine some of the discussions in the house. Just imagine. Mom and Dad saying, James, why can't you be more like your brother Jesus? He always studies so hard, and he gets straight A's. He's so obedient, kind, loving, gentle. He never backtalks, never picks on his sisters. He gets his chores done without even being asked. Can you imagine being Jesus' brother, listening to that? Talk about sibling rivalry, right? Of course Jesus is the favorite. He never does anything wrong. He's just so perfect. All the time. I bet you even think he walks on water. Right? So maybe we can understand why his brothers and sisters had it in for him. No wonder James had a hard time believing at first. Maybe he had to work through some, some of his childhood first. Right? Even after more than two years of miracles, James is still a skeptic. It would be pretty hard to swallow that uh, the idea that your brother that you had grown up with was really the son of God, right? It'd be pretty hard to, to fathom. So what changed James from a skeptical younger brother to a committed follower, an outspoken leader of the church? He saw his brother alive. He saw the risen Christ. Writing to the Corinthians, Paul listed the eyewitnesses to the resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 15, 7, he says, Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Can't imagine anything changing your mind like seeing your dead brother that you witnessed being killed and buried come back to life. What a family reunion that must have been. Could you imagine the conversations that those two had? I'm sure that experience opened his eyes to the reality of, of who Jesus was. Seeing his dead brother walking and talking. James believes that Jesus is the Christ, Son of God, to, to save people from their sins. <clears throat> then it records in Acts after the ascension, we find, we find uh, James with the apostles, Mary, and others in the upper room. They're praying continually and waiting for the Holy Spirit, just as Jesus had told them to do. He was a, a man whose life was changed by Christ. He was a sibling turned servant. He was an antagonist turned apologist. He was a, a passive observer turned into a passionate follower. And he was a church leader and a pillar 
He goes from brother of Jesus to a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. James becomes the leader of the church at Jerusalem. He must have been deeply spiritually mature to, to gain such prominence. It was James that moderated the church conference described in Acts 15. There, James listened to both sides. He allows them to fully express their opinions, their concerns, and and their arguments. And only after they get done speaking does he respond. His answer demonstrates his knowledge of the scriptures, his discernment and, and strong impartial leadership. His authority and wisdom are respected. His judgment is fair. When Peter was delivered from prison, he sent him a special message. When Paul visited Jerusalem after his third missionary journey, it was to James and the other elders that Paul gave his report to and brought the money that they had collected. Remember, when he went on his missionary journey, he collected all this money for the church in Jerusalem. He came to church. We just had Patrick here last Wednesday, right? He came to the church and gave his report. This is what I've been doing. James was the head of that church that Paul reported to. When recounting the story of the Jerusalem Council in Galatians 2, 1 through 10, Paul describes James as a pillar of the church, man of high reputation, Someone responsible for the establishment and the support, the church. So we see a progression in James from unbeliever to converted to a servant leader. Tradition tells us that he was a man of prayer. This may explain his emphasis on prayer in his letter here. Hegesippus, a second century Christian, wrote that James was often found alone in the temple on his knees praying, begging for God to forgive the Jews. He spent so much time on his knees in prayers that that they became calloused hard like those of a camel. And this earned him the nickname Camel Knees. Camel Knees. How would you like to have a nickname like that? Hey, old Camel Knees! He was the ultimate prayer warrior. His life bore evidence that he believed what he wrote about prayer in James 5.16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. He was a man of prayer. His faith would soon be put to the test. Because there's no no biblical record of James' death. Tradition tells us that James was martyred in in 62 AD. But again, Hegesippus records this about James' death. It's quoted by Eusebius, a 4th century church historian, tells how he is, James is so well respected at that time, even by non-Christian Jews, that they, some of them were, were believing in Christ. And he was so well respected that the Jewish leaders took him to the top of the temple, 
great height, so everyone could see him, so everyone could hear him, hoping that he would denounce Jesus, tell, tell them about this Jesus now, hoping that he would denounce Jesus, but instead he does just the opposite, declares Jesus as Lord, sitting at the right hand of the Father. And so they threw him down from that great height all the way to the ground. That fall didn't kill him. So they began to stone him. And that only caused him to begin to pray that the Lord would forgive them for what they were doing. Till he was finally beaten and killed with a club. James' faith was tested to the very end of his life. That's who James was. That's who James was. He had quite a journey from brother and skeptic to believer, church leader, to martyr. He matured. So, the next question is, who, to whom did James write this letter? To whom did James write this letter? Well, it tells us right there in the, in the opening, to the 12 tribes and the dispersion. James wrote to the, the Jews living outside of the land of Palestine. The 12 tribes refers to people of Israel, the Jewish nation. Many of these Jews were scattered through, through different nations. They were scattered all over says that. The fact that many Jews lived outside of the promised land is evidence of the spiritual decline of the nation. James wrote his letter to Christian Jews, specifically. At least 19 times he addresses them as brothers. As brothers. And these brothers were brothers in the Lord, not just brothers in the flesh. So, his message is applicable to us, too, because we're his brothers and sisters in Christ also. The setting for them was challenging. Being Jews, they would often be rejected by the Gentiles they lived among. But being Christian Jews, they would also be rejected by the Jews, There was a lot of problems. Religion. After the resurrection, religious leaders worked even harder to eliminate the church and any trace of Jesus' followers. There were early divisions in the church, as we've already learned, with opposition from the Sadducees, the legalistic Pharisees, and a a vengeful high priest that still controlled the temple. James wrote from a city in religious turmoil. How about politics? Judea was under Roman domination and rule. The Roman governors ruled with power and intimidation. Yet they would often try to keep the peace by appeasing the religious leaders so that they would keep the people in line. Uprisings and insurrections were common. The people lived under foreign rule in occupied territory. Christians were often powerless in their communities. They often felt that they had to accept their lot in life and just live quietly. Just stay under the radar. James wrote from a city in political turmoil. 
How about the economics? In general, the, the Jews of, of Jerusalem were poor, although many of the landowners and religious leaders had wealth. And some, like the tax collectors, like Matthew and Zacchaeus, they grew wealthy by joining with the Romans and exploiting their fellow countrymen. But eventually, Jerusalem became desperately poor because of Roman greed and the terrible famine. So James wrote from a city with an unstable economy. What was the result? Because of the conditions, these Jewish believers were tempted to to compromise their values and beliefs in order to avoid persecution. Or maybe to improve their economic situation. Certainly it would have been tempting to be secret believers. To blend in with society and and not to cause any problems. Or they could have been tempted to turn away from Christ altogether. Just to escape the, the religious, the political, the economic pressure around them. Christians today face similar temptations, don't we? Although we may not be ruled by a foreign nation, believers are a distinct minority in the world, aren't we? Just talked about Afghanistan this morning. Christ's teachings and commands still clash with society's values, don't they? Many Christians may feel persecuted socially, economically, religiously because of their beliefs. So, the question is, why did James write this epistle? Why did he write this letter? I've mentioned before, all the epistles have a reason, a purpose for why they were written. Paul wrote to the Romans to prepare them for his visit. 1 Corinthians was written to address some problems there. Galatians was written to a group of churches to to warn them against legalism and false teaching. We just saw the same thing in our study through Colossians, right? So why did James write this letter? Why did James write his letter? Well, the letter suggests people were having problems in their personal lives and in the church. We have to remember this was written early on in the life of the church. These believers were living far away from the apostles and the elders. They were, they were scattered. They were going through difficult trials. There were pressures. They were facing temptations to sin. They were hearers, but not necessarily doers of the word. Some were catering to the rich. Others were being oppressed by the rich. Some were competing for positions within the church. Improper use of the tongue was a problem, as was worldliness. Some were strained from the faith. James knew it was easy to slip back into old habits or to slip into a a spiritual neutrality when you're far away from home or if you're surrounded by people that don't believe the way you do. Easier just to not raise a ruckus. So he challenged his readers to, to move beyond mere words into action, to live out their faith, to grow 
immaturity. He wanted to protect the unity of the body, too, so he warned of discrimination, division, and hurtful speech. He told them to, to seek divine wisdom, to be humble, and to pray for each other. And I'm sure the, the first century readers of his letter would have appreciated his direct and practical approach. He didn't mince his words. He got right to the point. He gave them the answers that they needed. These problems are not much different from those that we experience today. Don't we see people who are suffering for one reason or another? Don't we see people who talk one way but walk another? Isn't worldliness still a serious problem? Aren't there Christians who can't control their tongues? It appears that James is dealing with very up-to-date problems. But James was not addressing an array of unrelated problems. They're not unrelated. All these problems had a common cause. Spiritual immaturity. These Christians had some growing up to do. Look again at some of the problems he dealt with, and you can see that each one of these is characteristic of little children. James 1 talks about impatience and difficulties. Impatience and difficulties. James 2, talking but not living the truth. James 3, lack of control over the tongue. James 4, fighting and coveting. James 5, collecting material toys. This gives us a strong hint to the basic theme of this letter. Marks of maturity in the Christian life. In fact, James uses the word perfect several times. A word that means mature, complete. By the expression of, of a perfect man, he didn't mean a sinless man, but rather one who is mature, balanced, one who has grown up. So James writes to fulfill a great need. That of spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity is one of the greatest needs in the church today. God is looking for mature men and women to carry on his work. Sometimes all he can find are little children who can't even get along with each other. So one person said, too many churches are playpens for babies instead of workshops for adults. James wrote to meet this need, so his letter is very relevant today. Finally, the last question to consider. How can we get the most out of this letter? How can we get the most out of this letter? First, we must be born again. We must be born again Christians. Apart from spiritual birth, there can be no spiritual maturity, right? Amen? James writes with the assumption of his, his readers being born again. So to benefit the most of this study, we must be born again Christians. Second, we must honestly examine ourselves in light of God's word. Honestly examine ourselves in the light of God's word. James compares the word of God to a mirror in James 
Matter of fact, that was one of the, one of the possible graphics we were looking at that Linda came up with. It was a mirror. God's Word, a mirror. If we study the Word, we're looking into the divine mirror and seeing ourselves as we really are. We must be honest about what we see, not nearly glance at it and walk away. We won't be able to, to mature and change if we don't. We must honestly examine ourselves the light of God's Word. Third, we must obey what God teaches, no matter the cost. We must be doers of the Word and not hearers only. The blessing does not come in studying the Word, but in doing the Word. James 1.25 must be doers. Fourth, we must be prepared for some extra trials and testing. This is the favorite one. You can see everyone being excited about this one. We must be prepared for some extra trials and testing. Whenever we are serious about spiritual growth, the enemy gets serious about opposing us. Now, I've shared with you many times on how that's worked out in my life. Personally, experience this. If you want to develop patience, you should expect some trials. James 1.3 tells us that. However, in the end, we'll be worth it. James 1.12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. It's going to be worth it. All of the trials and testing are worth it. Finally, we must measure our spiritual growth by the Word of God. We, we should not try to measure ourselves by comparing ourselves to others. Can't, we can't measure our growth by comparing it to others. How easy it is to think that you're better than the world, right? But we can't do it against one another either. 2 Corinthians 10, 12 tells us not to compare us to one another. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves. But when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with, with one another, they are without understanding. So we don't compare ourselves to the world because that is, that's setting that bar pretty low, isn't it? And we don't, we don't compare ourselves to one another because we're all on a different point in our journey. But by the Word of God, by the Son of God, that is the only measuring stick that matters. That is the only measuring stick that matters. So James... James is pretty practical for us today. James, the man, has credibility too. And that's why I, I went into the trouble of discovering who James is. See, James knows what it's like to be a skeptic. To not believe when, even when you've been around it your whole life. 
but then come to the truth and be radically changed, to embrace it and to grow into maturity and become all God designed you to be. And he, was, and he grew to be level-headed, mature himself. He's a good and wise leader that cares for his brothers. He's considered the options and the, the perspectives. He's prayerfully seeking after God's will. He's ultimately led by his relationship with God and his Savior. He seeks their will and not his own. So we can take the book of James for what it is. A call to maturity by someone who had to get there himself. James had to walk that road too. He knows. So he understands the trials. And he also understands the remedy. Spiritual maturity. Remember, not everyone who grows old grows up. There's often a vast difference between age and maturity. Just because a Christian has been saved 10, 20, 60 years does not guarantee that they're mature in the Lord. James grew up with Jesus, yet he didn't know him. Not until Jesus, the, the risen Savior, revealed himself to him. Jesus went from a, a brother to a servant. And he grew in maturity as he followed after his Lord and Master. No one here has arrived yet. No one here has arrived. Doesn't matter how long you've been in the church. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter how many degrees you have. Doesn't even matter how many seminaries you've attended. No one, including especially me, has attained perfection. None of us will this side of glory. We're all on this journey. We're all on this journey. As we study the letter of James together, with God's help, may we also grow and mature together. Amen? That's what it's about. He wants a mature church. We spoke about a bride. He, he expects something in his bride. We are his bride. He doesn't want a church of babies. He expects us to grow in wisdom and knowledge and maturity. It's not optional. We have to do it. With his help, we will, for his glory, so that we can be bold ambassadors for him and his kingdom. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we come before you again grateful, thankful for your, your love, your grace, and your mercy. And We're thankful for your word. We're thankful for those who have gone before us. We're thankful for James and the life that he lived. We're thankful that in spite of his poor beginning, that once you got a hold of him, his life was radically changed. 
And he went from a skeptic to a bold servant. And Father, I pray for each of us here that you would do the same for us. That you would help us to grow in maturity. No matter where we are on, on, that, on that journey, no matter where we are, that you will take us where we are and you will move us forward. That we would grow into the people that you have called us to be, Father. I pray that you would help us to encourage one another as we set out in this journey. That you would help each of us to work, speak words of encouragement to one another as we may face trials and, and tests of our faith. Because we know that those, those trials and those tests are there for a reason, to, to help us to grow. Father, I pray that you would help us to come alongside one another, to encourage one another, not to judge ourselves toward, to each other, but our only yardstick would be your word, your son. Father, I look forward to all that you're going to accomplish in the, in the days and the weeks and the months ahead in us and through us for your glory. And we give you praise for all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.